Good afternoon. It's a real pleasure to come and speak today. Um, a tough gig following Glenn. Um, and obviously setting myself up for a little bit to come and speak about communication if it all fails and it's rubbish, right? So I'm aware that I've set myself a high standard and a high bar. I think it's a little bit left field and quite pro pro probably quite brave of UKSA to, to vary the talks today. And, I, and what I've hoped to put together is a talk that will give you, will convince you that you're already quite good communicators. And a lot of the things that I talk about, I think you'll probably find that you do already. But it might put them within a framework that you can utilize and um, improve your discussions and your relationships and the rapport that you have with the various people that you deal with. I did have anxiety about this subject matter, but then I listened to Ali this morning and how he spoke about the change that happened when he was empowered to communicate with the coaching staff and how that relationship changed. And then the army that gave the talk earlier spoke about rapport and relationships and how it doesn't matter how good their programming is, they still have to convince people elsewhere about the benefits. So I spent 21 years in the police, predominantly as a detective in serious and organized crime. It's probably the start of me becoming interested in communication and interviewing. I, I had the great opportunity to interview a lot of people about very complex crime, sometimes sensitive matters, quite often to a no comment. <laughs> which then gave me the further opportunity to try and work out what the structure was of my interview. How am I going to ask questions? What time am I going to use? At what point am I going to introduce evidence? And then within my role, I took on the extra role of a trim practitioner. So within the police, PTSD is obviously a really significant risk. We're only now trying to get on top of that. So we have a peer-to-peer -peer system whereby I was trained as a TRIM practitioner, so TRIM would be trauma risk management. And all the cops that go to really horrible jobs, fatal road crashes, sudden infant deaths, sudden deaths, um, have the opportunity to sit down and we would go through a structured interview whereby we could talk about what happened and what they think about what happened uh, with a view to trying, in some way, to have some catharsis, but also to assess where they're at in terms of that level of risk of PTSD. And then finally, I trained as a negotiator. So initially as a crisis and hostage negotiator, and then further down the line, I did extra training in terms of kidnap negotiation. In terms of being able to bring examples today, it's really difficult. So I have to sanitize it a little bit in terms of names, places, tactics, techniques, and things like that. But hopefully what I'm going to do is bring together two different frameworks and an operational model that you may be able to use in your relationships going forwards. So the role of a negotiator within the police is a 24-7, 365 job right now. Wherever you come from, there are negotiators on call. Right now, there are negotiators dealing with people in crisis and kidnaps. It's just an ongoing thing. And the jobs come from all over. So 
you could imagine that there are international incidents whereby British citizens are involved, their family members might still be in the UK, and they need care and attention. And more often than not, the negotiators will be used to deal with the family and the parents and the associated parties to people abroad. Today, I'm going to deal more with the crisis side of negotiation because we don't really talk about kidnap and hostage negotiation for, for various reasons. But we're also used to try and find missing people, to speak to people that have gone missing deliberately, to try and build rapport, to try and find out more about them and where they are and see if we can help them. And infrequently used in protests. So the people who are uh, making any form of political protest, we may be deployed to try and build rapport, find out their intentions, what they want to do and why they're there. So if we're talking about people in crisis, we're talking about suicidal people and people that are going to commit harm to themselves. And whilst I wish I was an expert on it, and, and many first responders do, it's just such a complex area, it's so difficult to understand. The best description that I've ever had is that. Sometimes people make subjectively logical decisions that appear objectively irrational. It's the best description I can give. Because when, when we go and negotiate with people who are suicidal, it's a rational choice for them to be in that state of mind. They've thought about it and they've gone through processes to come to that conclusion and it makes sense to them. Objectively, obviously, it doesn't. So then I tried to extract what your role as practitioners might be and the re relationships that you have. And you deal with all sorts of people on all different levels. And hopefully today we could look at methods to improve the rapport that you have with various different people. From a personal perspective, I think sports coaching, well, without a shadow of a doubt, sports coaching helped me pass the negotiator course. And if I hadn't been through British Triathlon's performance programme for coaches, I would have failed the course. Because it, in, in British Triathlon, when you get to the, to the high performing section, it's no longer about technical skills, it's all about you as a person. How you reflect, how you take criticism, how you give and deliver feedback. And if I hadn't been through that process as a sports coach, I, I wouldn't have had the qualities to, to pass through as a negotiator. So Chris Voss is a really famous negotiator, worked for the FBI, but to debunk all the myths and the Hollywood, no one ever asked for helicopters, no one ever asked for a million pounds, that there was no glamour in negotiating. It was a phone call between 10 o'clock at night and three o'clock in the morning, most of the time, to go out in the dark, in the rain, to go meet someone in a, in, a, in, a, in crisis. So a lot of the models that we use in negotiating, we find from different places. So we find from counselling, from Carl Rogers. Um, and what we're about to go through in terms of underpinning everything that negotiators do, from a crisis to a hostage to a kidnap, it's the same skill and the same skill set. So my challenge, all throughout negotiating and training to be a negotiator, was can I listen to somebody without judgment or without my own agenda? Because we've all sat in meetings or we've all had one-to-one -one sessions 
where we know that that person's dying to get in. They're dying to get in. And you know they're not listening to you. So the, the question is, can you leave your ego at the door? Can you kind of expose yourself to being vulnerable in that way? So it's two o'clock in the afternoon. I'm stood in the garden. I'm looking at a locked front door. I've been here for two hours. The door hasn't opened. All the curtains are drawn. And I've just spoken to a closed front door for two hours. And as I look around, there's an armed cordon. So there's a guy with a machine gun here. There's a guy with a machine gun here. I'm stood between two armed officers. They have machine guns. They've got shields. They're there to protect me. I'm dressed pretty much like this. I've got a blistered vest on, helmet. And I've stood for two hours talking at the door. Nothing. The previous day, in that village, the primary school, just coming to closing time, all the kids are getting their bags together. The teacher hears a bang on the window, looks up at the window, and there's a man tapping a kitchen knife on the window. Primary school in lockdown, police called out, he runs away. The police start doing area searches, trying to find this person. They find someone that matches the description, go to arrest him, it's not effective. He manages to run away and he's in the house, barricades the door and it's shut. They seal the house and eventually the armed cordon comes along. There are risks. It's clearly someone who's mentally ill. We don't know what their capability is. We're worried about his access to other firearms and other weapons. So the tactic is to put a containment on and try and talk to him. But he doesn't want to talk. We tried on the phone, he won't answer the phone. We tried his family, he won't speak to his family. The last course of action is to put me in front of a door to talk to him. And I'm there, one hour, nothing. Break, back in, two hours, nothing. I'm in front of the world, the village is cordoned off, the press are at the cordon taking photographs, and I'm the mouthpiece, and I'm failing. And then just out the corner of my eye, I can see one of the firearms officers, and he stood, and then I just see the shoulders start to go. And then the two guys that I'm stood next to, their shoulders start to go. And I'm like, what's going on? And you can hear the radio, right? You can hear the updates on the radio. I ain't got a radio, I haven't got anything. He's like, oh, okay. The man inside the house has dialed 999. He's asked for the fire service to come and take the boring man from out the front of the house away. And I was like, oh. And then I thought, actually, that's the goal achieved, right? I wanted proof of life. We haven't heard from him for six hours. We wanted proof of life. We wanted to know that he was in there. So it's an ego bashing. There's no other way around it. It's an ego bashing, and we still, having had that proof of life and that contact, still no contact. To the point where the armed guys have to go in and force an entry. So sometimes it just doesn't work. So acting, active listening techniques. These are the eight techniques that we would start with for our negotiators as a basic entry and a foundation to their skills. And like I said, you probably do a lot of this already. So minimal encouragement is to just listen and give the uh-huh, mm-hmm. It doesn't even have to be verbal. I can nod the head, use my hands. 
Because the goal is, as a negotiator, and to try and get as much information as I want, is to keep you talking. It's not about me. I have no agenda. I'm not making any judgments. I want to keep you talking because I want to know everything. So paraphrasing. I would take what you've told me and paraphrase it. It shows you that I'm listening to what you're saying and that I understand it. Emotional labeling is probably one of the most powerful ones because if I can get your emotion, I'm there with you. When we've qualified as negotiators, we would then go on to stooge for the new negotiators and in CPD we'd be the stooges. So we, would, we know what's coming and we know what's happening. And the mistake that the early negotiators would make as they're finding their way and getting their skills is that they'd be faced with someone who'd be, I've, my wife's run off with my best mate, he's keyed my car, they've taken the dog, I'm locked out of my house, my whole life's turned into turmoil. And they say, sounds bad. <laughs> bad? This is, my life has fallen apart. So if they could have emotionally labelled with a degree of accuracy, they would have touched that nerve and they, there would have been that degree of empathy that would come in. Mirroring is a great one. It works with my kids a lot. But just to pick out in, in a sentence or in a paragraph that important word or that important phrase and just say it. You can practice this when you go home and I guarantee you it will work. So it's just that one word or that one phrase and they'll start talking again and you'll hook them in. Open-ended questions. This is my passion of interviewing bad guys. So we used to play all the time with open-ended questions. And the basics ones would be these, right? You know these, who, what, where, when, why, how. But the police love acronyms that don't mean anything. So we have <laughs> Ted's pie which we will come to. But before that, should we use closed questions? Well, yes, we should, because we don't want to beat around the bush a lot of the time. So sometimes we're just going to have to be direct and say, is this the case? Did he do that? But in terms of dialogue, the open questions are going to keep it going for longer. So how would we use them? So here's Ted's. Here's your who, what, where, and why, and there's the filling of the pie. And this is what I used to do all the time in interviews. I would have it written down in front of me. Describe to me in detail what happened. And I can play around with these and you can use these. And because they're not who, what, where, and why questions, but still very open, they can elicit more detail. So show me how. Precisely who did that. Tell me in detail why you did that. And then iMessages. So I want to deflect the situation onto me. So I get really worried when you talk about hurting yourself because I think you're going to cut yourself too deeply and we're going to have to go to hospital straight away. I'm worried that you're stood really close to the edge of that bridge. And if the wind comes, you might get blown off. And that really worries me. So I think you should step back over the fence and we can talk on this side of it because it worries me, I'm worried. 
I'm taking away from them. I'm not accusing them of anything. I'm trying to engage them in that dialogue. Effective pauses, often used in interviews. People love to fill gaps. Everybody feels uncomfortable. It's almost a war of attrition sometimes. Who can, who can sit it out the longest? But sometimes it just plays in your favour. Sometimes it just allows both of you to process what's been spoken about and a natural sparking conversation and dialogue will begin again. And to summarise, a little bit like paraphrasing, but the ability for me to take all that information that you've told me and tell it back to you, to show that I've been listening, to show that I understand. And I don't necessarily think you should put them at the end of the conversations. I think in meetings, you could sit in a meeting, people could deliver lots of different content. You can start with a summary. So you've told me that, that you want to do this, 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 this. Clarify it from the outset. And it's going to help the conversation continue on. And what if you get it wrong? Well, they're going to correct you. They're going to improve your understanding of what they were saying. There's no harm in getting it wrong. There's no harm in not understanding fully what was being said. So the negotiators remember it as more pies, because you need more pies. But there are other useful factors that we would use in a negotiation. So the power of because. It's no good that I just tell you something. If I give you a reason as to why I want you to do something, you're much more inclined to do it. So there was a study in 1978, it's old but it's relevant, where on a university campus at great, uh, assignment submission time, they had a stooge go to the queue for the, fact, for the um, photocopier and say, excuse me, can I just use it? And 60% of the time, people let them go in front. When they changed it to, excuse me, I'm in a rush, 95% of the people let them go in front because they had a reason. When they gave them a rubbish reason, they still mostly complied because they had a reason. Some of this work that, we're talking, that I'm talking about now, we're trying to implement in my university for social workers. So the social workers have um, a framework, a professional framework, which means they have to go out on placements. So they do their university work, they go out on placements, they're assessed. Um, it's obviously a nerve-wracking time for them. They're going into people's houses and they're dealing with really sensitive family issues. But what we're talking about is predictive behaviour and predictive dialogue, because we know that those social workers are going to go into a situation where, at some point, they might, they're going to see horrific injuries on a child and they're going to think, I'm going to have to ring the police. How awkward is that going to be when you're in someone's lounge? But I can predict some of the conversation and the dialogue that's going to come off that. And I can give reasons. I can think of five good reasons why I'm going to call the police. But I can practice that. Much the same way as you going into a, a meeting about a project, you're going to know what the barriers are, hopefully, to that project. So it might be around resourcing finances, location, but you can prepare for that. There's a predictive dialogue there and you can come up with reasons as to why you would like to do that.
So as I said at the beginning, it's difficult to sit with no judgment and no agenda to listen. But if you can practice it and learn it as a skill and just treat it as an exercise to get as much information out of people as you can, then you are in a better position than trying to interrupt to show how much you know, how much you understand, how I'm going to solve the problem for you. Because it's not about solving problems for other people. We just want to understand the context of, of the debate. They said on the course, and then when I joined academia, you look it up, seven seconds to make an impression. It's somewhere between three and seconds and 30 seconds, probably, looking at the literature. And the seven meetings afterwards, if you make a bad impression. So if your first impression is poor, then you're looking at having to meet people and prove yourself quite a few times before it's right. So this, again, it would be preparation. In the negotiator world, when we know who we're going to ring and we know about their background, we practice. So before I make that phone call to say, hi, my name's Paul, I'm from the police, I'm here to help you, I've had that conversation with my team 20, 30, 40 times, and they've varied the dialogue, so they've hung up on me. They've told me to go away. They've engaged. But I've practised, and I'm ready. And all these are put together to create that feeling of empathy, that I understand what you're going through right now, and I can walk, to some extent, in your shoes. So that would be active listening skills. The other side, as we progress along, it's great that we build rapport and start a relationship, we start to have trust. But in a, in a negotiation and in your work, when you're dealing with projects and you're dealing with your teams and the managers, you have a desired outcome. You want to influence someone's behavior, the way that they're doing something, the way that you want them to do something. And in the negotiator world, we draw upon Cialdini's work a lot. So originally he had six um, influencers and he created unity as a seventh. So very quickly, social proof. We enter into social contracts all the time. We sit in lecture halls, all facing the front, not talking when the presentation's going on. And if someone was to talk, it would disrupt that natural kind of being. So people follow a, a social norm or a social path, and they like to belong to that. We trust people that make commitments and deliver. We like it when people do what they say they're going to do, because if they don't, we then start to distrust them so we can enter into agreements to help people and do things, the important be, be, fact being that we would then deliver. Reciprocation. So when you go shopping and you walk into the shop and they give you the chocolate when you walk in, it's not because they like you. It's because they've done something for you and they, we have that natural inbuilt desire to give back. The bonus here being that it doesn't have to be a tangible benefit. It can be your time. It could be the colleague that comes to your office and says, have you got five minutes? Yeah, I've got five minutes. It's part of that rapport building and, and that trust. We like to be liked. <laughs> it's basic marketing. We go and we look for people that we like and we follow them. 
it's probably exacerbated on social media because that's what you do, right? You like people on social media. You follow the people that you want to be like and that interest you and have similar thoughts. Authority, coming from a police officer, I think this is the weakest one. Um, but if you were walking through London and you heard lots of bangs and a cop jumped out of a car with a gun and said, run that way, I think you run that way, right? There'd be a degree of authority there and you think, I think he's got it right. <laughs> Scarcity. We would often try and build opportunities for people to leave a situation because we're, it's scarce. We're giving you the opportunity. There's value in what we're offering you right now. So the longer this barricade goes on and the longer you keep your wife locked in that room, the worse it's going to become. The opportunity is here and now. And I can't control what's going to happen in the future, but right now I can say to you, if you walk out of that door, we can deal with this. And it's un under your control. You're going to retain that dignity of walking out because I'm worried that if you don't do that, you're going to give people reason to come in and drag you out. I've cre created that scarcity, that opportunity. And finally, unity. And today is the example, right? We look for people with like interests. We do it all the time. When you meet people, where are you from? What's your job? Where have you been? We look for unity and we can build upon that. So 11 o'clock at night, I get a phone call at home. Can you come in to work? There's a guy up a crane in the city. And this young lad, he's a campaigner. He's climbed 200 foot up a crane and he's draped his banners off the gantry for his cause. Um, so I, I go in. We've had dialogue in and out for part of the afternoon. It's not very receptive to coming down, although he's been given the opportunity and the scarcity because it's going to get dark, it's going to get cold, you should come down now. He's still there. So I ring him up, find out what's happening, introduce myself. The old negotiator's gone, you've got me now. And as we're talking, I find out that he loves cycling and I love triathlon. <laughs> and then we start talking about bikes. And then we start talking about routes. And then we start talking about cycling holidays that we want to go and do. And it's not bringing him down from the crane, right? But it's building rapport. We're talking about things that we both like. We're both enjoying each other's company. It's quite a nice conversation to have. And I'm learning things from him about what he wants to do and where he wants to go. And at the end of the conversation, he's like, Paul, you're really good to talk to, but you're a cop. And I don't want to come down. Like, well, can we make, can you come down tomorrow? It's like, well, yeah, okay, I'll come down. When the, when the sun comes up, I'll come down. I've had my protest to come down. When the sun comes up, he came down. It's really bizarre. Or the negotiation works. So this is the negotiator force velocity curve. <laughs> Where we look to build rapport. So I use my active listening skills to keep you talking, to find out more about you, to find out the information, to find out what, you, what makes you tick, why you're here, what's happened, how do you feel about it? And I look to add those influences in to try and adapt your behavior. And the more rapport that I build up, the bigger the challenge I can put in. If I turn up 
drive into a, a negotiation, don't introduce myself and say, mate, come out. It's never going to work 99% of the time. But if I build up that rapport and I have trust and perhaps I've offered to do things, I've offered to bring food to the house, I followed up on my side of the deal. We're now building in that indebtedness. And the more rapport, the more challenge. And I think this probably crosses over quite well to athletes. The more you can develop that relationship, build the trust, build the understanding, the more you can challenge them. So we have rapport underpinned by active listening and influence factors. So the final model is the behavioral change stairway. So it's based on emotional intelligence, on having empathy, being able just to sit with no judgment and understand people. It takes time. It's a relationship that we're trying to grow. In negotiation, obviously, it's like intense. It's, it's there, it's got to be done now. In work, it's a longer game. I can, I can work out my strategy better across that time. It involves active listening. And it involves that initial contact. So I'm going to practice my initial contact. I'm going to practice that introduction. I'm going to practice the speech so that we can start to build empathy and rapport. And that will grow into trust. Once we have that and we're on the stairway, we have the opportunity to influence and persuade, to solve the problem. And then we can change the behavior. So in terms of negotiation, I want you to come out of the house, step away from the edge of the cliff. Tell me where you are, because you've gone and taken an overdose. And I know you're in a field somewhere, but we can't find you, and I need, really need to know where you are. And we can start to you know, build that trust. And that was my whistle-stop tour of negotiation. Fantastic, Paul. Thanks ever so much for, for sharing your experiences. Um, any questions from anyone? Hiya, thank you so much. Um, you know when you talked about the stages, uh, so on the previous slide, mm -hmm. what if a time was an issue? So say, for example, we get this a lot, coaching teams or athletes. If time was an issue, what area would you reduce or omit to get to the behavior change faster? I think you need to understand your athletes and have empathy with them and know what their goals and objectives are. Because I think if you understand where they are, you're going to have that trust and engagement to come along with you. But sometimes you're just going to have to make a deadline, I think. So Chris Voss, the negotiator from the FBI, he says that everything's a negotiation. I don't think that's quite true. I think sometimes it's a, it's a transaction. And sometimes perhaps when there's a deadline, it becomes transactional. This has to be done by this time. And then you're going to struggle, aren't you, to build rapport and trust and build those things in to take people along with you. And that's part of the challenge. But then I, if, if I, so my own experience, I've turned up to people on, you know, on the bridge over the motorway. So there's a time, 
there's a time limit there. They can only stand there for so long, right? It's cold, it's windy, it's dangerous. But we never rushed it. There was never a feeling of being rushed because I wanted to understand why you're there and build that rapport. And that can only happen with that conversation. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Thank you. Any more questions? Thanks, Paul. Just um, wondering, how does the model change, or have you got any tips if you are negotiating with somebody who's also skilled at negotiating? It, it stays the same. I think if, in theory, you both get to understanding each other's position quicker, because you would both be asking those open questions to understand where you're coming from to come to a conclusion, right? So I think if it's a skilled negotiator, you're lucky. I, you, you could build in compromise. I guess it depends on the context of what you're after and how quickly you want it, right? But you should be able to communicate well if they're both skilled communicators they're both listening both parties are listening to each other then there should be a synergy there i think just um you've talked about conflict how well what would you advise for an individual that potentially or a relationship where there's one person who is aware of a conflict maybe an inner conflict that they're being asked to do something that they don't buy into how do, you, how do you advise that person starts the conversation with somebody that isn't aware of conflict or a need to negotiate? Say that again so I get the context. So you've, you've given it like, you've, you, you've responded to situations that are obviously requiring conflict management. Mm -hmm. But in the workplace that we work in, how would you advise individuals approach people that they have to have a brave conversation with which might require negotiation? Is there anything that you can offer skill-wise there? So it's pre preparation, I think being prepared. If it's going to be sensitive, you know the topic already that you're going to talk about. And I would be looking at what do I think are they going to come back with me at? So uh, taking it away from this, I, I've got a presentation next week for a project to my professor. I know already he's going to say, we don't have the resources and we don't have the money. Um, so I've gone off and I've tried to find alternatives for that. But when it comes down to it, it's going to cost him money and it's going to cost him resources. So I'm looking for other positive actions that I can put in place to say, well, this benefits you. So I'm coming back almost to a reciprocity because if we do this project, it'll enhance the reputation of the university. It will improve the student experience. It develops our staff. So yes, it costs money, it costs resources, but there are benefits. I think when you touch in sensitive stuff, so like suicide and self-harm. So when we negotiate with self-harmers, if they're harming themselves and they're not doing it really badly, we probably wouldn't tell them to stop mm. because it's a release. But we're aware of that cognitively and we can approach that sensitively. But you have to get the environment right. I think if you're in the workplace and it's very sensitive, you've got to do it correctly, right? You can't, it's not going to be in an open boardroom meeting. You're going to create the environment that is conducive to having that difficult conversation whilst being prepared for it. Thank you. Any more? I'll go here because it's quicker. And then I'll go there. Yeah, this will be a quicker question as well. Um, 
when you're doing the allowing the other person to respond, so you're pausing and allowing them to respond, um, sometimes that can take a really, really long time. Uh, and it can be quite intimidating to mm-hmm. just keep looking and eyeballing and it gets a bit weird after a while. So do you kind of advocate just like putting your gaze somewhere else or is there... Yeah, it becomes oppressive, right? Sorry? It can be oppressive. That silence becomes oppressive. Yeah. Yeah, so I'd be looking at the other techniques then. I'd be looking at the minimal encouragers to start with because I'm looking for you to fill the gap. So I'm trying to encourage you to do so. It may be that I drop back to a summary. So, you know, you're having difficulty answering that. But from my understanding is that you've said this, 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 this. Hope that it prompts the conversation. Does that help? Yeah, it's easy for us as practitioners to fill the gaps, but we want to leave the gap for the athlete or whoever we're talking to to fill for us. Um, yeah, I, I think it helps. It's, um, I, yeah. I don't know about anyone else, but when you are looking dead straight, it can be intimidating. So something that's been effective for me is just literally just not looking anywhere but their eyes until they answer. Is that, is that a good idea or not? No, I think so. I'd summarise. I'd summarise what had happened before to that point and then leave another gap. So say, this is what I say, because they just might be processing what's being said, right? They might be just touching on what you've said and how it's hit home. And now they're thinking, oh yeah, you might be right. But am I going to lose face? Is it that kind of thing that's going on? Um, If they look confused, then the emotional labeling. Did you understand? Do you look a little bit confused about what I've said? Just trying to, encourage them to delve deeper yeah great thank you um what would you recommend for like a negotiation for beginners which of these models is the the low-hanging fruit to sort of practice deliberately i think the active learning skills you google it you'll find it um all the active learning stuff to keep a conversation going so on the negotiator course for an hour every morning we would sit back to back and one candidate would think up of a scenario, the other one would talk through it, and then we'd swap over and we'd do it. And it was just practice and practice and practice of those active listening skills, those more pies, um, and then doing it with my wife and the kids. And when you go shopping, I love people come knocking on my door selling stuff because it's just, it's just practice, right? Oh, what have you got? Tell me more. So yeah, I, I think the more pies, it's achievable, and um, the more you do it, and, and every now and again, like the mirroring, you'll do the mirroring, and they'll just talk forever, and you think, yes, I got it, I nailed it. And you're just building it into your everyday dialogue. Paul, um, just got one question. Obviously, there's a risk that those situations like hostages and you know, kidnappings go, go wrong, and I'm sure you have had experience of them going wrong. Is there any sort of reflective practice that takes place afterwards um, to get to the bottom of you know, what happened and why and how it could be improved? Yeah, so we, we undergo debriefs all the time. For all jobs get debriefed uh, in terms of the logistics of who was there, why they were there, the tactics that we used as negotiators, because we sit within the wider policing world. So while I'm talking to you and I want you as the hostage taker to listen to me, there's loads of other things going on. 
and I don't need to know about them because they're going to influence what I say and how I act. So I don't need to know what secret squirrel stuff is going on. Um, but yeah, we would debrief, uh, but we would debrief as a whole. So the guy with the knife at the primary school, once the entry's been made and he's been detained, we're back at the firearms base and they're talking about their tactics and their containment. Then they're talking about the negotiators, the tactics that we used prior to turning up, how, why we used the dialogue that we did. And we review it all the time. It's continually reviewed. Sure. Would you encourage that sort of practice in maybe a, you know, a, a situation that the people in the room might be in in terms of working with athletes or working with, with other stakeholders? Do you think that would be um, yeah, helpful in, in their environments as well or if there's any carryover there? Yeah, absolutely. I think in terms of pro like project management, you're continually going into stages of progress and dialogue and meetings and asking other people to make your de deadlines or produce work or do other stuff. And I think over time you can build in how you're building rapport with people, how you're influencing them, how you're encouraging them to do the work that you want them to do. And, and I think you'd only ever recognise that if you got back together as a team to say, so what's happening? Who's working really well? Who do we need to encourage more? How can we progress? Sure. Might have time for one last question, if there is one. Could you expand on how you make a good first impression? So when we're negotiating, it's knowing facts. So I always want to get the name right. I always want to be confident. I always want to explain. And in the terms of crisis, is trying to impress upon that person that I'm there for them. That's my sole job. And sometimes the difficulty with negotiation is the hang-ups around I'm talking to a cop, he's a police officer. I don't want to speak to a police officer. So it's, it's having those positive actions, those five reasons why I think you should be talking to me and being prepared. But I think name right, confidence, being clear about where you are and who you are and what you want. Thank you.